We are the Mystery History Podcast. I'm Allison. I'm Rachel. Welcome to episode 94 on Starved Rock Murders. Yeah. This is going to be crazy. Yeah. I think, because I know nothing about it. I told you to watch the documentary. <laughs> but it seems like you there's a lot going on. No. There's, there is a lot that goes on, and you don't do what I say is the main thing. That makes me mad. Well, that's been our whole lives. Yeah. Well, now this is going to mess it up for you. The documentary is not going to be all twisty, turvy, twisty, turvy, (laughs) twisty, curvy, because you know what's going to happen now, but you still have to watch it. I will. Promise. But (laughs) you're like your lying face is on your face right now. (laughs) Uh, Well, we don't ever let's let's talk about business. We don't have any. None. Got no Um, business. We did hit 63,000 downloads, which is good. Good. And we're going to do our t-shirt drawing in two days, but this will be happening before this episode releases, right? Yep. So we'll do another one. This one was more directed towards uh, our Patreon, but next one will be just for everybody. That's right. Yes. We will indeed. We still have merch available. We haven't talked about merch in a minute. Um, We have t-shirts and sweatshirts, all kinds of junk on mysteryhistorypodcast.com. So you can go check that out. Speaking of Patreon, you can join us there to get over 74 new episodes of ones that are only released there exclusively. Plus, we'll send you a love note and a sticker, like always. We will. Mm Mm-hmm. Got some good stuff. And you can get discount codes that way for, for merch. That merch. Yeah. Previously discussed. <clears throat> all right. Yeah. But yeah, that's really all I got. All right. Wrapped it up quick. You and me start. Do it. All right. So Starved Rock Lodge boasts it is voted the number one attraction in the state of Illinois, which I have a hard time believing. There's a lot of stuff in Illinois. Like, like Chicago. Chicago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So I don't know um, what the competition was. <laughs> yeah. All the attractions in Illinois. I don't know, but whatever. They state it is a world apart from anything else in Illinois. Amazing seasonal waterfalls are active in the spring and after heavy rains. They have 13 miles of trails to explore, and the Illinois River offers fishing, boating, extraordinary views, and great places to relax. So Starved Rock Lodge sounds like a pretty sweet place, right? The number one place. The number one place in Illinois. Who even knows about Chicago? <laughs> well, and that's the thing. Whenever I think of Illinois, that's all I think about is Chicago. Right. I don't think of forests. I don't even really think of like the lake. Literally anything else. Yeah. Even though the lake <laughs> is like right is there. part of Chicago. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's weird. Um, so... No one can say that Starved Rock does not have a violent and bloody past, though. Like Mm. Chicago. Much like Chicago. Mm -hmm. Illinois, man. So the park takes its name from a rock fortress on the Illinois River where a band of Illinois Indians were besieged in the 17th century. As their numbers decreased from starvation, desperate warriors attempted to escape only to be slaughtered in the surrounding forests. So that's how Starved Rock got its name. That went dark fast. Yeah. (laughs) That's how we do. Yeah. 
Uh, on March 14, 1963, friends, Francis Murphy, 47, Mildred Lindquist, 50, and Lillian Oding, Oeting, we'll say, 50, left the Starve Rock Lodge located near North Ithaca, also known as just Ithaca, Illinois, to go hiking through St. Louis Canyon. The canyon, famous for its scenic waterfalls and rock walls, is a well-known tourist attraction there. The three women, who were the wives of esteemed Chicago businessmen and hailed from the suburb of Riverside, had come to Starve Rock State Park in LaSalle County, Illinois, for a four-day vacation. Okay, so let me stop right there and tell you I did watch this documentary. I thought we talked about this, so okay. So I'm back. However, I can, I'm never going to get this name right. I, I, they didn't connect to me. Starved Rock and then this documentary. Yeah. Cause I kept, I kept calling it Strangled Rock. Yeah. I think that's, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. For for good reason, probably. (laughs) Not really, but (laughs) not really, but you know, whatever. Um, So this area is where people from Chicago, like suburbs would go visit and stay at this lodge. It was like a getaway place kind of thing. So the three friends who all attended the Riverside Presbyterian Church had been anxious for an outing together. Oding, who had spent the entire winter nursing her husband after a heart attack, was especially looking forward to several days of hiking, bird watching, and spending time outdoors. Employees at the Parks Lodge would later remember the arrival of the three ladies, Frances Murphy had parked her gray station wagon in the inn's parking area, and she and her friends had unloaded their few pieces of luggage. They registered for two rooms, dropped off their bags, and then ate lunch in the dining room. Afterward, they remarked to one of the staff members that it was a beautiful day for a hike, and they left carrying a camera and a small pair of binoculars. That seems like a fun trip. I know, right? We should do it does. that. Not like Starved Rock, but like We should like do that. Starved Rock. Okay. I'm down. Yeah. Okay. See let's how, let's be like see a how seven or eight hour drive, but we can do it. <laughs> hey, <laughs> it looks beautiful. It looks it very does. pretty. Okay. So the women walked away from the lodge wearing rubber galoshes. The path was covered with a light snow as they trudged and slipped along, pausing occasionally to take a photograph here or a photograph there. Eventually, they came to the dead end of St. Louis Canyon where steep rocky walls framed a majestic frozen waterfall. Sounds gorgeous. Mm, it does. The three women were only one mile from the lodge. Lillian Oding struggled with the controls of her friend's camera and snapped several color slides of the canyon. When she finished, the group turned to leave. And that was that. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> and that then they evening. went home. They went home <laughs> and lived wonderful their husbands. lives. That's right. And goodbye. (laughs) And we are done here. No. That evening, George Oding, Lillian's husband, was waiting for a call from Lillian. She promised to call him, uh, but she didn't. So Oding called the lodge himself, and he was told by the staff on duty at the desk that his wife was not available. It was surmised that the ladies had gone out somewhere, and the staff member suggested that she would call in the morning. So Oding was like, okay, cool, and went to bed. Tuesday morning, he called the lodge again and once more asked to speak to his wife. The employee who answered mistakenly told the worried man that the three women had been seen at breakfast and were simply out of the lodge at the time and reassured him that he sh- everything was fine and he ended the call. Who does that? <sighs> That's who tough. does that? 
Is it, is it uh, tough? Yeah. If and I'm it, not sure, I'd be like, I think I saw them at breakfast, but maybe I didn't. And I wouldn't be sure because I didn't see them at breakfast because they weren't at breakfast. So right. wouldn't you just be like, I don't know if I'm not sure of something, I'm not going to be like, yeah, they were at breakfast. Well, and it's weird though, too, because he just suffered a heart attack. So you right. think that she would be calling him quite a to bit check on him. Yeah. yeah. Right. And she had already said she would call. So like, that would be suspicious. Mm-hmm. That night, a late winter storm hit the Illinois Valley, um, in St. Louis Canyon, several inches of snow covered up footprints, blood stains, and some other vital pieces of information around three cold and still bodies. The near blizzard conditions continued all night long, making the roads in the park nearly impassable. George Oding telephoned the lodge again on Wednesday morning. So this is after the snowstorm and this is March 16th, 1960, but his wife and her friends could still not be located. So at this point, he insisted that the employees enter the women's rooms and found that the beds and bags were untouched. Because they never went to bed. They went straight to lunch, dinner. Off. Yeah. And then hike. Oh, man. Mm-hmm. A quick check of the parking lot also showed that the Murphy station wagon had not been moved. Shocked, Odin realized that his wife and her friends had now been missing for more than 40 hours. Wow. Yeah. So as soon as Odin broke off the call, he called his friend Virgil Peterson, the operating director of the Chicago Crime Commission. And when Peterson learned of the news, he contacted the state police and other law enforcement agencies in the area. So within minutes of um, George finding out that his wife and her friends were missing, the word of the missing women had reached the LaSalle County Sheriff's Office and Sheriff Ray Utsi began organizing search parties to look for the women. And he accompanied one of the groups that left immediately for the park. Wow. What a good guy to have like his phone number. Yeah. Yeah. So he's like, you know, those three women's husbands were all pretty well known. I think in Chicago had good connections, that kind of thing. They weren't just, you know, from some small town somewhere. Mm-hmm. Bill Danley, a local newspaper reporter, was just finishing his last story for the day's edition when he got the tip about the disappearances. Grabbing a camera, he braved the snow-packed roads and headed for the park. When he reached the park's west entrance, he noticed a boy running across an icy ravine toward the road. He drove to a small parking area and found sev- several other kids shouting that bodies had been found on one of the trails. Danley recognized the boys as members of the nearby Illinois Youth Commission Forestry Camp, where he had once led an explorer post, and he pulled them aside to a nearby storage garage for some questions. When they told him of the bodies, he called the lodge where the law enforcement officials had gathered and then called the newspaper to report the discovery. In a matter of minutes, the story was flashing across newswires across the count, uh, the country. So it's out Quick. there now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. At least, at least he called law enforcement first. Yeah. Cause we've had and, that where that wasn't their top priority. Right. And law enforcement was already there in the Canyon at that point. I think they were there present when the bodies were found. So Danley was among those who entered St. Louis Canyon and got the first look, um, to see what was going on. The three mutilated women were lying side by side, partially covered with snow. They were on their backs under a small ledge and their lower clothing had been torn away and their legs spread open. 
Each of them had been beaten about the head and two of the bodies were tied together with heavy white twine. They were covered with blood and their exposed legs were blackened with bruises. So they had a rough go. That's surprising that they let him enter. They, I mean, there's a picture. They let freaking everybody and their mom in there. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. That's a lot of people. Right. There's, there's lots of people over there. State police detectives soon arrived and began a search of the immediate area, except for the floor of the overhang where the bodies were found. The entire Canyon was covered in nearly six inches of snow. So that would be so difficult to find anything in that. Right. The fine white powder had to be carefully removed. And as it was signs of a violent struggle were revealed. Mrs. Murphy's camera was found about 10 feet from the victims. It's a leather case was smeared with blood and its strap was broken. They also found the woman's bloody binoculars. A short distance away, LaSalle County State's attorney Harlan Warren stumbled across a frozen tree limb that was streaked with blood. The snow beneath it was covered with blood and it was realized that this was likely the murder weapon. A trail of gore also led them to speculate that the woman had been killed in the clearing and then their bodies had been dragged and positioned under the rock. The bodies remained in place for hours until pathologists and the state crime lab officials could arrive. The vigil lasted long into the night and then aided by lanterns and flashlights, the victims were removed on cloth stretchers. So they were out there for hours Mm -hmm. trying to get the evidence and things like that. Mm -hmm. And they didn't move the bodies until the state crime lab officials came. So like they're doing the right stuff. Yeah. Just not letting 57 other than having the whole town in. Yeah. Yeah. The bodies were taken to the Hulse funeral home in Ottawa where they were examined and autopsied. The women had obviously been molested, but the cold and the limitations of medical techniques at the time failed to find any evidence of rape. The doctors were able to determine the time of death, placing it shortly after they had enjoyed lunch at the lodge. I find it very interesting that they can place time of death, but can't tell if somebody's been raped. I agree. That's like questionable to me. I agree with that, but I don't know what all happens whenever you die. Like, yeah, there's I mean? like, yeah, Stuff but with the fact that they're, they're saying the temperatures and the conditions made it so they couldn't tell if these women had been raped, but then they are still able to tell what the time of death was, even though they were in like cold weather conditions, you know, out there for 40 hours. Yeah. So I don't know. I just think that that's kind of interesting. So no motive was suggested for the murders, but robbery was dismissed as the women had left their money and jewelry behind in their rooms when they went for their afternoon hike. And then also the jewelry and things that they actually did have a value on them were not taken. The investigation went nowhere, almost from the very beginning. There were a few clues to follow and theories began to grow wilder and wilder. Things were further confused by all of those who wanted to main, uh, maintain jurisdiction in the case. State's attorney Warren and hardworking, geez, a hardworking and respected official was technically in charge, but the state police maintained their authority in the case because the murders were committed on park property. The two law enforcement camps clashed, but Warren was in a bind. He was forced to deal with the state authorities because the officials in LaSalle County simply had no experience dealing with crimes of this matter. Yeah. So they're in a small town. Yeah. They had nowhere to 
to start. They've never, I remember this part of the documentary specifically talking to that cop mm-hmm. who was just like, I didn't yeah, know what to like do. <laughs> Sheriff Barney out in the small town. Yeah, like, oh, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. As the investigation slowly moved forward, fear was gripping the region. Doors that were never locked before were now firmly secured. Hardware stores experienced a run on new deadbolts and sporting goods stores saw guns vanish from their cases. The number of overnight guests at the Starved Rock Lodge dropped off to almost nothing. And some motorists went miles out of their way to avoid even driving near the canyon entrance. Newspapers and radio broadcasters around the state widely reported the slow progress of the investigation and elevated the level of panic in the area. So they're getting like all this coverage, but nothing's happening. Right. Well, that's a bummer for Starve Rock Lodge too. I bet they, I bet this hurt them for a very long time. I'm sure that it did. The continued newspaper scrutiny of the case kept pressure on police officials to keep making progress, but they couldn't, especially at Heartland Warren's county office. He was doing everything in his power to move it forward, but he had a hard time coping with the pressure, which I'm sure was immense, especially during an election year, which is double bad. Even worse. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Money was becoming a problem as well since the investigation budget was soaring. Throughout 1960, he was under ever-increasing pressure to solve the murders. He was frustrated, and he felt that he had taken enough criticism for the investigation. He was an attorney, and he was not a detective, but he decided to take one last desperate run at the case. He asked himself what the killer had left behind at the scene of the crime, and the obvious answer was the twine that had been used to bind two of the victims. So using his own money, Warren purchased a microscope and began intently conducting a study of the twine. His research revealed that there were two kinds of twine used, a 20-ply cord and a 12-ply one. With this information, he sought out help to follow the lead. And instead of choosing someone from his staff, he handpicked two county detectives who would report to him alone. Do you remember that? Yeah. Yeah. So these were guys that weren't going to leak anything out and, you know, um, this Warren guy trusted, trusted these guys specifically to do a good job. And their names were deputies Bill Dummett and Wayne Hess. The men chose the most logical place to start the search for the source of the twine, which was, of course, Starve Rock Lodge. In September 1960, Warren and his deputies met with the manager of the lodge's kitchen. Within minutes and without much difficulty, Warren found both kinds of twine used in the murder. They were uh, each used for wrapping food, and Dummett and Hess used lodge purchasing records and soon tracked down the twine's manufacturer. The twine used to bind the murder victims had been taken without question from the supply in the lodge kitchen. Just as Warren had always suspected, the killer either worked at or had access to the park's lodge. And that is, I mean, why'd that take six months? Exactly. They were a mile (laughs) from the lodge. Mm -hmm. And that's like the only thing going on. Yeah. I mean, I know that they looked there, but like that was one of the few, I mean, they had pieces of evidence, but that was like one of the main pieces of evidence. Why did it take them six months to tie the, tie the, not tie, whatever, to determine that that's where that pun came from. I know, no pun intended. (laughs) My own pun tripped me up on whatever (laughs) I was going to say. So, I mean, six months, that's, that's a long time. 
So faced with the fact that all of the lodge employees had already been given polygraph tests and had passed, Warren now had to wonder if the tests had been accurate, which I mean, they probably freaking weren't because they aren't that accurate, Um, right? No. He decided that it was time to run some of his own tests and he hired a specialist from a prominent Chicago firm. And Warren recalled all of the employees who had worked during the week of the murder and just had them all come back in. One by one, they came to a small cabin located near the lodge and again submitted to an exam. The first dozen or so were cleared quickly and Warren and the deputies wondered, were they wasting their time doing this? Then Bill Dummett brought in a former dishwasher named Chester Otto Wigger and everything changed at that point. Um, When Wigger's polygraph test was completed, Warren noticed that the examiner's face had gone pale. As soon as Wigger left the cabin, the technician ended months of endless leads and wasted time. And he turned to Warren and the two deputies and stated, that's your man. Yeah, that's crazy. Bold statement. (laughs) Wigger was a 21 year old. Uh, He was slight, small, um, and he had a wife and two young kids. He had worked at the park until that summer when he resigned to go into business with his father as a house painter. Demet remembered the names, the man's name from an earlier police report, but he had never made much of an impression on the investigators. Warren intensified the investigation of the man and strangely, he was happy to cooperate with them. He surrendered a piece of a buckskin jacket that he owned so that some suspicious dark stains on it could be examined. It later turned out to be human blood. Shocker. All right. But in 1960, it could not be typed and matched to a specific victim. Warren also asked Wager to submit to further polygraph tests. And again, he agreed. He was given an entire series of tests and he failed all of them. Every single one. Yep. I mean. That's bad. I'm. I, yeah. I don't have much faith in the polygraphs. Right. But that doesn't look great. It doesn't look great. But, you know, when he was submitted to these again, I think that he was under a more stressful situation than when he was submitted to them the first time. Yeah, that's probably true. Yeah. Once the jacket was determined to be stained with blood, Warren put the former dishwasher under constant surveillance by the state police. Warren, along with Dummett and Weger, um, began. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. I think I mistyped on there. Uh, Dummett and the other guy, Hess, began checking into Wegger's past and also into similar crimes in the area, which might have escalated into murder. Dummett came across a reported rape and robbery that took place about a mile from Starved Rock in 1959. With Warren's approval, he approached the young female victim with a stack of mugshots, and as she sorted through them, she began to scream as she came across the face of Chester Wegger. So that's also uh, not not a good sign. Not looking great. Mm -mm. With this positive identification, Warren could have easily ordered him to be arrested, but he was forced to wait. A new problem had reared its ugly head. With all the time and energy involved in the investigation, Warren had worked very little on his campaign for re-election. If he booked Weger on rape and murder charges before the election, defense attorneys would simply say that he'd done it so it was a stunt to retain his job. He left Weger under surveillance, not wanting to jeopardize the case against him with the election, which is a shitty reason 
to it do is that. but it's political and i, I mean, know it's the right it is the right thing to do in that case right but it's just it sucks shitty it's still shitty yeah <laughs> confident of his record of cleaning gambling and prostitution out of LaSalle county during his eight years in office warren let his past actions speak for themselves unfortunately his opponent let the bungling of the starved rock murder case speak for him out of sixty thousand votes cast in the election warren lost by 3500 mm-hmm. bummer it is a bummer So he was disappointed with the election results, but he still had time in office to pursue the case against Weger. And although his evidence was not as strong as he would have liked it to be, he obtained an arrest warrant against Weger for the 1959 rape and ordered Hess and Dummett to pick him up. He believed that when he saw all of the evidence mounting against him, Weger would confess to the crime and to the Starved Rock murders. Warren made careful plans with his two deputies about how to interrogate Weger before confronting him with murder charges. A short time later, Hess and Dummett arrived at the young man's apartment and explained that they had some more questions for him. They made no mention of the arrest warrants that were waiting at the courthouse. Then once they had him in custody, the officers began to question him about the rape and also began to press him about the murders. They kept him in the interrogation room until past midnight, and then finally, weary of questions and nearly exhausted, Wigger stopped in mid-sentence and asked to see his family. A police car was dispatched to his home, and Oglesby and his mother and father were brought to the courthouse. Dummett and Hess gave them a few minutes alone with their son. In his official statement, which was taken the next day, Deputy Hess stated, when Bill stepped out of the back room in the state attorney's office to show Mr. and Mrs. Weger to the door so they could go home, I could see that something was bothering Chester. I said, Chester, why don't you tell me about it? There are just the two of us in here. Just tell me about it. He said, all right, I did it. I got scared. I tried to grab their pocketbook. They fought and I hit them. Minutes later, the confession was transcribed and signed by Weger. So this next section is pulled from lawjustia.com, and that's an American website specializing in legal information retrieval. So this is um, kind of a substance of what his confession was. So he said, on the morning of March 14th, Wegger, then a dishwasher at the Starved Rock Lodge, completed his usual morning tasks at the lodge at approximately 11 o'clock a.m., He wrote a letter to a friend and ate lunch around 1130, then returned to work, helping with the washing of the luncheon dishes and pots. He finished shortly before three and left the lodge soon thereafter. He walked down the trail to St. Louis Canyon, taking about 25 minutes. He first encountered the three women near a bridge at the entrance to the canyon. Thinking it was a purse, he grabbed at a strap hanging over the shoulder of one of the women, who was later identified as being Mrs. Oding but it turned out to be a pair of binoculars. He began to run past the women back out of the canyon when Mrs. Murphy started hitting him with a camera or pair of binoculars. Mrs. Oding also began striking him with something sharp, and he seized her by the arms, saying that he meant them no harm. The women agreed to walk with Wagger back into the canyon on condition that he would agree to let them go. When they reached the end of the canyon near a waterfall, he told him that or he told them that he would have to tie them up. Mrs. Murphy broke free and began hitting him with her camera. He became angry and hysterical, picked up a club lying lying nearby, and hit her in the head with it. 
He carried her to a cave near where the other women were sitting. Mrs. Oding, who had one arm free, began striking and scratching him, and he then hit her and Mrs. Lanquest in the head with the club. He dragged their bodies into the cave because there was a red and white Piper cub flying in the area, which he thought might be a police plane. He then went back to the lodge. The confession was amply corroborated by other circumstances and evidence. Many of Weger's co-employees testified that they had noticed scratches on his face on the evening of the 14th or shortly thereafter. An examination of the jacket he said he was wearing the day of the murders revealed bloodstains thereon. The owner of the airplane Weger said he saw was located and testified that he had indeed been flying in the Starved Rock area on the day of the murders. There was also testimony by a wood expert that a piece of wood found in Mrs. Oding's head came from the long club found near the scene of the murders, which the defendant had confessed was one of the murder weapons. Not looking good, Chester. No. Not looking good, Chester. The molester. Whoa. (laughs) I mean, really? Just because it rhymes doesn't make it right. I had to say it. It's (laughs) true in this case. So Wigger confessed several more times to the murders over the next few days and even reenacted the killing for a crowd of policemen and reporters at the canyon. Which is like weird. That is weird. But sometimes weird. Sometimes they do that, but not for reporters, I don't feel. Like Yeah. They have it was like a play. Like he was like putting on a show. Yeah. Which is like weird. That's weird. Typically, it's just like they did this and they did this and there's their body. Right. Mm-mm. Then suddenly, after his first meeting with his court appointed attorney, Wigger changed his story and stated that he was innocent of all of this. A little too late, bro. Mm-hmm. Wigger claimed that Dummett and Hess had coerced a confession from him by threatening him with a gun. He had lied in his confession, but had been so scared that he signed the papers anyway. Weger also said that Dummett had fed him the information about the airplane. He claimed to be in Oglesby at the time of the killing. I mean, I know. Oh, his reen I mean, the reenactment and every, I don't know. It's bizarre. It really like, is to to go into the detail that he did for the confession and to then go reenact this murder these murders for a crowd like that it's just strange so Weger was brought to trial jury selection took almost two weeks and the trial began on January 20th 1961 The new state's attorney, Robert E. Richardson, was in charge of the prosecution and was assisted by Anthony Regulia. The trial, which gained national attention, was presided over by Judge Leonard Hoffman, and because the two prosecutors had never tried a murder case before, (laughs) he suggested that Harlan Warren be named as a special prosecutor for this case only. I mean, okay. Yeah, I guess that's how we do it. Richardson, who had strongly criticized Warren during the election, dismissed the idea. Richardson and Regulia claim are decided to file charges against Weger for only one of the three murders. 
The reason for this was that in the event of a mistrial or an acquittal, aka they F up, they could still file charges against him for the other killings. And they sought the death penalty in the case. I have mixed emotions on that. About what part? About the, I understand why they would only want to do one out of the three. Yeah, they want a chance in case they've never, in case they do double jeopardy. Yeah. Yeah. They've never done this before. They've never prosecuted a murderer case before. as, As a family member, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if I'd be okay with that, you know? Yeah, that's rough. But I mean, you're right. They have reason behind making that decision. On March 4th, almost exactly a year after the murders, the jury brought back a guilty verdict for Chester Weger. On the day of his 22nd birthday, he was sentenced to a term of life imprisonment. After Judge Hoffman dismissed the jurors, reporters asked if they knew that a life sentence in Illinois meant that Weger would be eligible for parole in a few years. Most of the jurors were shocked. They had no idea. Some of them even said that if they had known that Weger was not really being sent away for the rest of his life, they would have voted for the electric chair. A lack of knowledge of Illinois' law and the prosecutor's failure to properly instruct the jury ended up saving his life. I didn't know that either. Mm-hmm. What's the point? Which part? The life oh, sentence he'd thing. Be a, he'd be a, well, you can get a life sentence without the possibility for parole or just i guess a lifetime imprisonment with the possibility for parole so that's what he got but i still feel like if you're going to get a life sentence at least make it like 10 years before you're able to go for parole not a few years i think it is actually longer than a few years because at that point what's the point of a life sentence i mean i guess they might change their mind in a few years yeah that's that's nuts i don't like it (laughs) yeah so Chester Weger was incarcerated at the Statesville Penitentiary in Joliet and then in Illinois River Correctional Center in Canton. Weger had been denied parole two dozen times since 1972. So he them. went for parole 24 times and was denied every time. So to this day, Chester Weger continues to maintain that he was framed for the murders by deputies Dummett and Hess. But both of the deputies, until the day each of them died, insisted that Weger had confessed. They firmly believed that he had committed the murders and had been the perpetrator of one of the most heinous acts in the already bloody history of Starved Rock. Isn't that sad, too, that all of this started because he wanted to rob a lady's purse? Yeah. Like, for and three people died? Mm-hmm. I don't know. If it was him. What do you think? Well, let's get into the let's let's get into the other possibilities over here, sister. Because okay. if you remember, there's a lot of other possibilities. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember that as well. It's coming back to me. Um, okay, so let's start. Wager mentions in the docuseries on HBO that he thinks that George Spiros, who is the son of the owner of Starved Rock Lodge in 1960, where the women were staying at the time they were killed, may have had something to do with the slings. May have. Deborah Fox claims in The Murders at Starved Rock that he enjoyed harassing and inducing fear in women. Fox, who was also a member of the committee to free Chester Weger, recounted that Spiros would watch her and sexually harass her while she worked at the lodge. Mm-hmm. Hmm. 
She recalled a moment in which he locked her in a cabin at the lodge with barking dogs. She theorized that dogs could have been utilized in attacking the women. And she said, I believe he had those dogs pull those women at bay while he tied them up. She said, noting paw prints found at the crime scene. How did she know there were paw prints at the crime scene? I don't know. I'm assuming it was part of the evidence. I got assumptions, but I don't know. Hmm. And there, there was other things about this guy. He was like a pretty sketch character and she was not the only person that had complaints about the way he acted. Yeah. Yeah. Spiros was also initially eyed in the murders and he was the one who sent investigators Wegger's way. Wegger's former public defender, Donna Kelly, filed a clemency hearing request in 2005 in which she cast suspicion on Spiros. Um, So that was reported by the Chicago Magazine. So she basically like defamated his character. I don't even know if that's the right word because it wasn't like legally bad, but you know, she found all this evidence that built up to look like he definitely could have committed these crimes. Just two weeks after this clemency hearing request, Spiros was found dead in his Starved Rock residence at the age of 73 from an apparent self-inflicted gunshot wound. His dog was also found dead at the scene. Why are you going to do that? I hate that. I hate that. Like, ugh, keep it to yourself. Um, <laughs> Kelly said, I feel it's suspicious that this man was a suspect in this highly publicized case and now he's dead. So Spears' family maintains that he took his own life to avoid the suffering of a cancer diagnosis that he had recently received. What about the dog? Yeah. Did the dog have cancer? Leave the dog alone. He did nothing but be a friend to you. Which that just, that alone tells me this guy did it. (laughs) (laughs) If you kill a dog, you've killed a human. It's the rules. It's the rules. Um, there was also a guy named Harold Smokey Rona, who may have apparently told his sister before dying in 2005 that he was involved in the murders and that Wegger had nothing to do with them. So that has never been verified, but it might have happened. This suspicious character has been linked to upwards of 13 murders, but that also does not appear to be verified. <laughs> and he was however an informant regarding a 1984 murder so it's just like a suspect guy like that was killed 13 people or not or not hard to say may have said he was involved in the murder maybe he didn't nobody hard to say we weren't there but yeah so there's like some doubt cast on Wegger's guiltiness and then also you know there's some ideas of who who it may have been so these are the factors favoring Chester's innocence god bless you hard on there are numerous factors that cast doubt on Chester's confession and support his case of innocence at the outset there is no physical evidence linking Chester to this gruesome crime scene and no witnesses place him at the scene of the crime however so, there- like stop there there's no physical evidence for anyone though it was cold there is- well there is actually physical evidence for some people they don't have any linking Chester how often 
Is it that they try somebody and they get life in prison with no physical evidence against them? Probably more times than we would like to admit to ourselves. Well, I feel like it's not that often. (laughs) I, I don't know. The justice system is so screwed up. Like, I feel like a lot of times they wait until they find physical evidence before they like prosecute people because they need that. Well, and just like, okay, so let's go back here to that guy, to the dude who was trying to run for office. Okay. Yeah. So he didn't get reelected because Mm -hmm. of the slow moving process of this case, as some may suspect. But then as soon as he lost, he tried this guy and wanted to push it so i wonder if that could have been like a redemption for him like no i didn't get it done but i did the, i did it now you know yeah um, this is just it could have been i don't know i just wish we could know everything i wish we could know everything too <laughs> and like in this i would like to say there in this documentary they the the person that it made the documentary is the man who was running for office that prosecutor um guy's son and he made a lot of people mad making this documentary because his well i'm not gonna ruin it but like you know people oh. were upset yeah do you remember i cried a lot during this documentary okay but one of so, the things what <laughs> so yes I watch a lot of documentaries. Okay. This is terrible. I probably look super unprofessional right now, but I remember, and he's old and he's talking and you just want to hug him and love him and tell him it's all going to be okay. Yeah. Yeah. This guy goes to the prison and interviews Chester. Who's this old, old man at this point. And it, I mean, I cried and I cried too. I was like, man, if this guy is not innocent, I'm going to be pissed AF that I cried for like a solid 10 minutes over him because he better be, I'm just telling you, there better be a redemption song for this man, because if he did commit these murders, I'm going to be really mad at him for making me cry for no reason. (laughs) Well, and that's just right there is a perfect example of media or facts that you gather, like if if I because I obviously forgot the documentary that I watched and I'm like he freaking did it who would put on a, a show you know what I mean? so if you only get that and then you don't go to the other stuff it's it's super hard it seems to, obvious yeah but it's not yeah yeah it's not um so so go ahead okay sorry At the outset, there is no physical evidence linking Chester to this gruesome crime scene and no witnesses uh, to place him at the scene. However, there is physical evidence that supports Chester's exoneration. A blonde hair found on the finger of Francis Murphy's glove was analyzed by the Eastman Kodak Company and found to be dissimilar to hair samples taken from him. So they weren't likely to be his. Chester's, yeah. Black hair was also found in the palm of Lillian Odings. Chester did not have black hair, so those hairs did not come from him. Although numerous hairs and fibers were collected and analyzed, no hair or fiber evidence was introduced at Chester's trial. The fact that they both blonde and black hairs were recovered on the victim strongly suggests the presence of two killers. 
It's also unlikely that the 5'8 Chester Weger would have been able to overpower and restrain all three women, which I agree with. Like, I agree with that too. Even a big man, one, I mean, three women, one of them couldn't have got away. I mean, right. And like, he tied, like, they ended up tied up. But if somebody tried to steal my shit and I'm with two of my friends and I'm taller than him, (laughs) yeah. And then he, tells us let's go back into the uh, clearing and I'm going to tie you up so I can go away no I'm going to trample your short butt get out of my way like no (laughs) and I'm I'm trying to recall but if I'm recalling correctly I don't think these were super small women Mm -mm. they were I mean not heavy set by any means but not like super short or you know slender or anything like that I thought that they looked like they could take a man down right and they weren't like they weren't that old they were 47 and yeah 50, yeah you know so it's not like they were 70 or anything like that like n- there's no way that yeah. somebody's going to convince me and my friends to go back that's not happening the only way I could see it is if there was a gun involved mm-hmm. which they said there's I mean there's no um, there's no evidence, evidence that, one was, that shot. There was yeah but you don't always have to shoot anything to f- make somebody fearful of getting shot right and chester never said he had a gun yeah so many feel that the evidence that was used to convict convict wegger would not stand up in court today his prosecution largely turned out to be based on his confession which predated miranda warnings that are required today yeah so he did not get read his miranda rights others question how small he is um saying that there's no way he could have overpowered them, which we just went through. And they were saying that there's no way he could have overpowered them and then moved their bodies by himself to leave them hidden under the rock overhang. Like that would have taken Mm -hmm. a while. Yeah. So Chester passed several polygraph examinations in the weeks after the murders. There was no reason to give Chester any more polygraph examinations six months later. And authorities claim that Chester failed this exam Um, him failing it needs to be looked at skeptically for the reasons that we talked about. I mean, he, the first one, first of all, whatever, but then after that he was in duress, you know, stressed out. Yeah. So Chester's claim that his confession was involuntary and coerced is supported by the fact that Sheriff, Sheriff Deputy Dummett threatened Chester Weger with the electric chair if he didn't confess. The threat of death is one of the leading factors contributing to false confessions. Moreover, Chester's confession is implausible on its face. Chester claims that his motive was robbery, yet when the bodies were found, the women still possessed their jewelry and rings. It also defies common sense that one of the women would have started the altercation by attacking Chester, as stated in the purported confession. Yeah, Yeah. like he said he was running away and then murphy chased him and started hitting him like if he's running away bye felicia right (laughs) i mean yeah but if you somebody was trying to steal your purse i would be all up on that person's shit like yeah (laughs) tackle would both be right so So it's unlikely that he tried to take her stuff yeah and then as he's running she chases after him and starts beating him up like nobody does that he didn't get anything and he didn't seriously injure them according to his own statement. So like, why would you chase after him? I don't know. 
So decades after Chester Weger was convicted, a juror admitted to the Tribune in 2016 that she found Weger's confession implausible at the time. Weger's current attorneys, Andy Hale and Celeste Stack, argue that a case such as this would have never made it to trial under today's standards. Around 1982, an alleged deathbed confession was made from an anonymous woman from her hospital bed to a Chicago police officer. An affidavit recounting the event surfaced in 2006. Sergeant Mark Gibson states that he went to a hospital to help the woman clear her conscience. The woman told the officer things got out of hand at a state park and they dragged the bodies. Gibson reported that this confession was cut short by the woman's daughter who said her mother was not of sound mind. And, you know, could this incident be referring to the starved rock murders? Maybe. Hmm. Could be. Throughout his, excuse me, throughout his incarceration, Chester Weger continued to plead his innocence. In a letter to the Chicago Tribune on April 20th, 1963, he wrote, now there's nothing in the world that I needed bad enough to kill for, which is, I mean, yeah. Yes. His, his friends and family rallied behind him in 2013, starting a Friends of Chester Weger Facebook page with almost 2,000 followers. Again, in 2016, he told the Tribune that he would rather die in prison than admit to something he did not do. Along with his fight to prove his innocence, Weger sought, sought clemency but was denied in 2007. Mm. I remember him. Yeah. So on November 20th, 2019, the Illinois Prisoner Review Board in a nine to four vote granted Chester Weger's request for parole. The prior 23 requests had been denied. At the time of his release, Chester Weger was the second longest serving Illinois inmate, having been incarcerated for 61 years. Chester Weger's attorneys, Andy Hale and Celeste Stack, were thrilled at Chester's release from prison and vowed to continue Chester's fight to prove his innocence. They said, we are very pleased that Chester was released today and to the arms of his devoted family who have waited decades for this day. Chester, who turns 83 on March the 3rd, maintains he is innocent of bludgeoning to death three women in 1960 at Starved Rock. He succeeded late last year in persuading a judge to send pieces of evidence to a private lab for tests not available when he stood trial. The exhibits in question included cigarette butts, hairs, and pieces of string collected at various spots at the crime scene. Mm -hmm. So this is going to get good. Yeah, a private lab isn't finished yet analyzing evidence from the case. So a hearing for Chester has been moved to April 18th. So that's coming up shortly. Wager attorney Andy Hale confirmed that the lab analysis still is pending. So attorneys agreed to continue the schedule or yeah, to continue the scheduled February 8th hearing an additional 10 weeks. So it was supposed to have already happened, but they they let it go back further. The testing should be completed shortly before then, hopefully, Hale said. So we will have an update. And I'm telling you, this bro better be innocent. I'm nervous. Because I am emotionally vested in this. And this little old man, I'm telling you, he better be innocent. Or I'm going to be bad. Yeah. We'll, so we'll have to do an update um, whenever this gets released on if Rachel is sad or happy. 
Yeah. Not sad. I will be angry. Mad. You don't make me cry. We'll make write me them. think you're innocent. <laughs> we'll write him a letter. I don't really want to write an 83 year old man hate mail. So please Chester, don't make me do it. <laughs> yeah, that would be ground upon probably but then what happens since he already went to he's nothing just done. he'll be out yeah i mean he'll be out it'll just be peace of mind back. right and i mean this may come back like inconclusive or whatever who knows i wonder but... what will happen though if he's innocent if they'll have to pay him like a million dollars plus in restitution or whatever it's called i don't know that would be good for his family yeah, and if I were him, 83, go live it up now, bro. Oh my gosh, is it I feel like I just like keep for that ish. No, go skydiving, do all the things, dive with sharks, fit, fit that life into the couple hopefully years you have left. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's a sad story. If he is innocent, that's just terrible. Yeah. But that is really and this one really could go either way like who confesses like that and like does all those things and why i mean there's speculation that you know they may like somebody may have threatened his family you know there's all sorts of other inner workings here that i feel like they go into in the hbo documentary so i would highly recommend i would feel though i would assume that if he really did do this he would not be wanting <laughs> this. to take evidence. Yeah. Yeah. And like test it because he's yeah, already served his time and he can say that out. he didn't do it and just live life that way. Right. Mm. So I don't wild. Know. We'll, we'll see how it goes. Well, wow. Well, let me cite my sources. Okay. Um, I used AmericanHauntingsInc.com, ShawLocal.com, the HBO documentary Murders at Starved Rock, Wikipedia.com, TheCinemaholic.com, Oxygen.com, StarvedRockLodge.com, HailMonaco.com, News.Yahoo.com, and LawJustia.com. That's a lot of sources. Yeah, these notes took me a while. I feel like most everything I got from AmericanHauntingsInc.com, like most of the beginning stuff. Yeah. Well, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see. We will, mm -hmm. we'll keep a lookout for it and keep you posted. Um, and then we'll hopefully have a good outcome. I hope so. All right. Well, we hope you guys enjoyed this episode 94 of the starve rock murders. We highly suggest that HBO documentary. So you can cry with us. Yeah. And we will see you next time. Bye. Bye.